Welcome to Thriller Vault, where thriller writers tell their favorite stories. I'm your host, Phil Williams. I'm here with my co-host, action-adventure author, Luke Richardson. How are you doing, Luke? I'm very well, Phil. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. Before we get into the story, I'd like to mention that Luke and I have tons of audiobooks for sale. So if you're enjoying these stories and you'd like to hear more from us, just search your favorite audiobook retailer for Luke Richardson and Phil M. Williams. So I titled this story, The Prophet and the Disciple. It was early winter of 1953 in a sleepy Chicago suburb. Dorothy Martin woke to a warm tingling in her skinny arm. The 50-something suburbanite had a feeling that someone was trying to get her attention. She picked up a pencil and a pad of paper from her bedside table. Her hand began to write as if it had a mind of its own. She asked the being to identify itself and it wrote, I'm your father. Dorothy Martin's father was dead. Over time, Dorothy's automatic writing moved from her dead father to higher forces located in outer space. Dorothy thought space was overflowing with spirits who were desperate for communication. Dorothy received messages from a spirit identified as the elder brother. Dorothy and the elder brother tried to help her dead father advanced to a higher level, but her father was a terrible student. The elder brother eventually gave up on her father, but not on Dorothy. Dorothy received other messages from spiritual beings from the planets Clarion and Cirrus. In mid-April of 1954, she received messages from Sananda, who identified himself as the contemporary Jesus. Dorothy shared her revelations with a few close friends and family. But as you can imagine, she was met with derision. Even her meek and understanding husband did not believe her. She did not blame the superior beings who sent her messages. She worried that there was something wrong with her delivery. Maybe she wasn't the right messenger. Then, on Easter morning, she received the following message from the elder brother. I'm always with you. The cares of the day cannot touch you. We will teach them that seek and are ready to follow in the light. I will take care of the details. Trust in us. Be patient and learn, for we are there preparing the work for you as a conoiter. That is an earthly liaison duty before I come. That will be soon. You were directed to tell your experiences of my coming to you, for it prepares the way in their hearts. I will come again to teach each of you. They that have told you that they do not believe shall see us, when the time is right. A few days after the Easter message, Dorothy received a message from one of Sananda's assistants. It said, Go tell the world that we have at last contacted Earth with the waves of ether that have become tactable by the bombs your scientists have been exploding. This works like an accordion when the condensation leaves the carceous level of the ether or atmosphere levels that support a large light layer of marine life, it causes a barrier to be set up. Now that the bombs have broken that barrier, we can break through. That is what your scientists call the sound barrier. We have been trying to get through for many of your years with alcitopes and the earling timer. Later that same day, Dorothy received another message. It said, You will need real-level thinking people around you. Get a couple of learned friends that can stabilize you. Let them know what you are doing. Let them watch with you to see that you are not misunderstood. Share what you have with each other. Share all and be enlightened to those who are ready. Dorothy tried to share her divine knowledge, but everyone thought she was crazy. Her husband ignored her increased proselytizing and fervor, choosing to go about his business as a traffic manager for a distributing company. In June of 1954, Dorothy was introduced to a small group of housewives in the neighborhood who, like Dorothy, were interested in Scientology and the occult. At these meetings, Dorothy read some of her messages, and she read her messages at another Scientology group in nearby Lake City. Dr. Charles Laughhead learned of Dorothy through a, through a UFO expert who had spoke highly of Dorothy's ideas. These ideas were uniquely suited to Dr. Laughhead and his wife Lillian. They were students of mysticism and the occult. They had studied many of the same texts as Dorothy had. 
Dr. Laff had attended a non-denominational Protestant church where the doctor organized a group of college students called the Seekers. In this group, they discussed ethical, religious, metaphysical, and personal problems. They were always seeking the truth. Dr. Laughhead was charismatic and self-assured and influential among the young Seekers. The Seekers talked about anything and everything, no matter how counterculture the ideas. Dr. Laughhead often discussed flying saucers and his belief that they were in fact real. Dr. Laughhead had good reason to believe in flying saucers, as he had met George Adamski, one of the authors of The Flying Saucers Have Landed, and Adamski had been quite persuasive in his argument. Dr. Laughhead's wife, Lillian, had her pet beliefs too. She believed in the flooding of the continents of Mu and Atlantis. After hearing of Dorothy from a UFO expert, the Laughheads wrote to Dorothy and they exchanged their similar experiences with the occult. Shortly thereafter, Dorothy received a message from Sananda telling her to go to Collegeville, Mich Michigan, where the Laughheads lived. Dr. Laughhead worked at nearby Michigan State as the director of MSU's on-campus health center. The relationship between Dorothy and the Laughheads moved pretty quickly. Shortly after their letters, they were visiting and staying at each other's houses. Dr. Charles Laughhead would become th that learned man that Sananda and his assistants had, had mentioned. And some of the seekers would become loyal disciples of the burgeoning faith. The messages from Sananda increased, with Dorothy sometimes receiving as many as 10 lessons in a day. The messages were diverse and constantly changing. Some were information about alien planets and diets. Others were warnings of, of an apocalypse on Earth. Dorothy was told about intelligent beings who existed beyond our solar system. These beings resembled humans, but were much less dense and able to do with their minds what humans must do with physical force. These beings did not die like humans, but lived forever. Of these beings, there were teachers called the Guardians, who taught in a school of the universe. A Guardian from Clarion, speaking directly with Dorothy, said, We are in the Avagada, or spaceship of light force propulsion. We are like human beings of Earth and have much in common. Though there are millions of years difference in our culture, we are still brothers. Sananda spoke of Clarion too. He said, It is a beautiful place to live. We have weather, snow, and rain. Dorothy was told, It is ignorance of the universal laws that makes all the misery of earth. We see and know that you struggle in darkness and want to bring real light, for yours is the only planet that has war and hatred. Dorothy received many messages promising visitation from these alien beings. Prophecy of a great flood also began to appear in her messages. She received messages to seek the light, to love thy neighbor, to cease thinking, to be still of the five senses so that there may be direct knowing of the Creator. On July 23rd, Dorothy Otto wrote a message that a spaceship would be landing at Lyons Field on August 1st. Dorothy didn't broadcast this message, but the message leaked, likely through Dr. Laughhead. On August 1st, Dorothy, the Laughheads, and a few other followers parked alongside Lyons Airfield, waiting for the spaceship. It was hot and muggy. An unknown man approached the group. He didn't appear to have a car. The other women were afraid, thinking that he had a strange look in his eyes. But Dorothy was curious. She offered the man a drink and a sandwich, but he declined. His eyes looked through Dorothy's soul. His words sent electric currents through her feet. The man left and Dorothy felt an unexpected sadness. The spaceship never came. At the end of the day, Dorothy asked the others how they felt. They all felt that something had happened on that roadside, but they didn't know what. Maybe it was a test of faith. The next day, Dorothy received another message that read, It was I, Sananda, who, who appeared on the roadside in the guise of the Syce. The Syce was a term used by the Guardians that meant one who comes in disguise. The story of the Syce had been transmitted to her before the message about the spaceship landing. This was significant to Dorothy. The story of the Sice was a story about a journey to the center of the earth and the center of the self. This explanation for the no-show spaceship was comforting to Dorothy and her true believers. The next day, August 3rd, Sananda sent a message promising future visits. 
Twelve disciples stood vigil at Lyons Airfield, but only five stuck around. The seven who abandoned the faith were never true believers. The failure of the prophecy was enough for them to abandon the faith. The Laughheads were the truest of believers. A few weeks later, Dorothy went to Collegeville to visit the Laughheads. During this time, she received many messages. Some early human history emerged, with references to Mew and Atlantis, likely influenced by Lillian Laughhead and her pet interest. The origin of Earth's population also emerged from Dorothy's magical hand. Many eons ago, on the planet Car, the people divided into two factions, the scientists, led by Lucifer, and the people who followed the light, led by God and Jesus. The scientists invented a bomb called an alcetope and destroyed the planet Car. This explosion and disappearance of Car disturbed the balance of the universe and caused much chaos. The forces of light retreated to Clarion, Uranus, and Cirrus. Lucifer led his troops to Earth, but their minds had lost all their cosmic knowledge. Since that prehistoric day, the cycle was repeating itself. Lucifer was on Earth, leading scientists in constructing weapons of mass destruction. If fission continued, the destruction of Car could be repeated on Earth. Jesus Christ's visit, visit to Earth was an attempt by the forces of light for people to turn away from the Prince of Darkness. It was only partially successful, with some people being receptive to the light. But the forces of evil and science were strong. In August of 1954, Dorothy received more messages about an impending flood. Sananda said that Egypt would be remade and the desert would become Fertile Valley. Mew would rise from the Pacific. The uprising of the Atlantic bottom would submerge the land of the Atlantic seaboard. France would sink to the bottom of the Atlantic, and England and Russia would become one great sea. So, sorry about that, Luke. Sucks for you. Uh, Dorothy and the Laughheads felt a great responsibility for this sacred information. On August 30th, 1954, Dr. Laughhead sent 50 copies of a seven-page treatise titled open letter to American editors and publishers. In this open letter, he proclaimed the coming apocalypse. He cited evidence from Bible quotes. This mailing marked a serious change in Dorothy's message. Up until then, her messages had been largely private. She had a few disciples, but the group was very small. Dr. Laughhead had posted their doomsday prediction to the 1954 equivalent of Twitter. On September 17th, Dr. Laughhead sent out a second, more concise press release. It had the same prediction, but this one came with a doomsday date. December 21st, 1954. It's all gonna end. The second press release led to a Lake City Herald reporter contacting Dorothy. She spent two hours with the reporter, answering his questions without emotion. She didn't try to convince him of the coming cataclysm. Dorothy felt that her role was simply to pass on the information. What people did with the information was up to them. Despite the news article, Dorothy and the Laughheads did little proselytizing, limiting their interaction with a small group of friends and followers. One morning, shortly after the newspaper article, two men appeared at Dorothy's door. One man said he was from Earth, but the other wasn't. They delivered a message that Dorothy was not to publicize her messages until the time was right. Dorothy wasn't sure if the men were agents of Lucifer trying to stop her from warning humanity, or they were genuine agents of the light. As a result, she decided against publicizing her messages further. It was Lillian Laughhead who told reporters about the group's plans to avoid the flood. They had plans to go to the Allegheny Mountains just before the flood. They would establish a spiritual community of believers where they would remain for a year and would then be taken to Clarion by the Guardians. There, they would be trained and spiritually prepared and sent back to Earth to repopulate with good people who walk in the light. Lillian also told the press about the believers in Collegeville, the seekers who were led by herself and Dr. Laughhead. Despite the press, as of mid-October 1954, Dorothy had very few local followers. The Laughheads were better at gaining followers, especially through their group, the Seekers. The Seekers met weekly at the community church. 12 to 15 students attended regularly. Dr. Laughhead's interest in flying saucers and outer space 
led to concern by the staff of the community church. The staff gave Dr. Laughhead an ultimatum. Stop talking about flying saucers or meet elsewhere. Dr. Laughhead moved the meetings to his house. It was here in October of 1954 that he told the seekers about the impending apocalypse. The seekers were largely receptive as they had already been primed to accept the message. The Laughheads recruited more than Dorothy, but that's not saying much as Dorothy didn't recruit at all. The Laughheads were not fervent recruiters either, preferring to be selective with their efforts. Dorothy's messages were clear. When the apocalypse comes, people will be treated according to their spiritual development. The most ethereal will be taken to planets like Clarion to be trained as future rulers of a cleansed earth. The rest will suffer and die on earth. Then their spirits will be taken to planets appropriate for their level of spiritual density. In other words, everyone will get what they deserve. By mid-November, the Laughheads allowed new people into the inner circle of the Seekers, but only after a vetting process. Dr. Laughhead was concerned about the Michigan State Administration disciplining him for talking about the occult to the students. Reincarnation was a subject of Dorothy's messages. Dr. Laughhead didn't talk much about reincarnation, but he let it slip in one Seeker meeting that Dorothy was the reincarnation of Mary, the mother of Jesus, and someone was also Joseph. It was likely Dr. Laughhead was referring to himself. The other disciples were likely previous disciples of Jesus almost 2,000 years ago. Between the middle of November 1954 and December 20th, the day before the flood, 33 people attended seeker meetings. Of those 33, eight were extremely committed. These people took concrete steps to ready themselves for the, for the coming apocalypse. Some people made public declarations of the coming flood. Some freed themselves from obligations. Some even quit their jobs. Some gave away personal items. The Laughheads would certainly fit in the extremely committed category. Dr. Laughhead was asked to resign his position at Michigan State because there had been complaints about him using his position to teach unorthodox religious beliefs. Dr. Laughhead likely considered his dismissal part of the plan of the Guardians. Meanwhile, in the suburbs of Chicago, Dorothy had very few followers. Interest mostly came from children who wanted to hear stories about flying saucers. The parents of the neighborhood were not happy about this, though. The police eventually threatened to have her taken to a psychiatric examining board. This threat scared Dorothy enough to stop talking to the children. Dorothy held a meeting at her home on, on November 23, 1954. Ten true believers were in attendance. The group was there for specific orders for what to do on December 21st. Bertha Blatsky was one of the ten true believers. She was married to a local fireman and worked as a clerk. She had a barren marriage and had jumped from job to job looking for meaning. She had been religious for most of her life, attending Catholic schools. A friend had introduced Bertha to Dianetics and metaphysics. They started the meeting with a silent meditation. After 20 minutes of tense silence, Bertha Blatsky began to pant. Then she gasped and said, I got the words, I got the words. Then she cried. Dorothy and Dr. Laughhead went to assist her. They laid her out on the couch. The doctor checked her pulse. Bertha's panting and sighing got louder. She said again, I got the words. The Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Her entire body shook. She said, This is Sananda. Sananda speaks. I am Sananda. These are my sibets. Bertha shrieked and said, Oh no, not me, not me. He can't mean me. Dorothy replied, Oh yes, he does, Bertha. Yes, Bertha, he does mean you. The meeting went on until the wee hours of the morning until Bertha, channeling Sananda, but mostly spouting platitudes and nonsense. Despite this, Dorothy wanted to continue. Dr. Laughhead had thought Bertha was quote-unquote quote off the beam. Sananda eventually requested to reconvene the next night at 11 p.m. In an ironic coincidence, Bertha's husband worked nights starting at exactly 11 p.m., and she was attending the meetings without his knowledge. The next night, Bertha was much more confident. Her voice boomed, but not as the medium for Sananda, but as the creator. Bertha discussed metaphysical topics such as the good and the will. As she talked, she became more domineering. 
The Creator's teachings had nothing to do with the teachings of Sananda and the group. Instead, the Creator and Bertha emphasized self-discipline and obedience. Basically, the Creator thought people needed to be responsible for themselves. The two marathon group meetings did nothing but make an unclear situation less clear. They learned nothing of the un upcoming flood and what they were supposed to do. All it did was elevate Bertha to a position of power in the group. On November 28th, Dr. Laughhead held a seekers meeting for a dozen mostly true believers. He informed them that they were destroying all writings of the divine messages and that the meeting would be the final seekers meeting. They would also accept no more new members. Enrollment was closed. Laughhead told the true believers that Sananda had changed his plans. The seekers would not take refuge in the hills as a group to be rescued by flying saucers, but instead would remain in their homes to wait for an individual instruction from the guardians. Dr. Laughhead told them to go about their business, don't draw attention to themselves, and don't proselytize. Most importantly, Dr. Laughhead assured the true believers that the flood was coming, but they would all be saved. On December 3rd, the Laughheads left Collegeville for the Chicago suburbs. Orders came from the Guardians for members to quit their jobs. One true believer quit his job at the hardware store. Another resigned as the head of a nursery school. Bertha quit her job as a clerk. Several of the true believers were now living with Dorothy. Dorothy fasted for several days, becoming quite thin and weak, as she had already been quite skinny. Dorothy also became more convinced that her house was under surveillance by evil people. She often said that her house was protected by the Guardians and that the Guardians would ensure only certain people would enter her home. Dorothy relayed a message that they were supposed to remove all metal from their clothing and personal items. Dr. Laughhead ripped the zippers from his pants. One seeker removed the eyelets from his shoes. They wore ropes in place of belts. They emptied their pockets of change. They removed wristwatches and eyeglasses. Dr. Laughhead explained that if they were to ride in a flying saucer, it was important not to have metal on their person, as the metal would cause severe burns during flight. Everybody knows that. Bertha, aka the Creator, had called a meeting for 7.30pm on December 3rd. Dorothy had been doing an individual consultation with a close friend, and this delayed the start of the meeting. Bertha was very agitated. Maybe because of her irritation or because of her new position of power, the Creator, through Bertha, criticized many of the central tenets of the group. She brought a roast to the meeting, even though they had been encouraged by Sananda to be vegetarian. The Creator encouraged them to eat protein, to gather their strength, also contradicting the messages of fasting. Bertha often challenged Dorothy's authority, overruling a de decision by Dorothy on where Bertha should sit. Bertha mocked the language used by Dorothy, aka Sananda, stating, I don't have to use fancy words like thee and thou and shout. We are talking cold turkey. Bertha ridiculed Sananda by saying, Another in this room has been told that she was Mary, but she was told by Sananda, and Sananda did not know. Now you are getting it from the one who knows. Bertha's power trip continued by kicking out the good friend that Dorothy had been counseling when the meeting was delayed. Dorothy was powerless to stop the creator's tirade. After all, the creator outranked Sananda. The climax of the meeting came after several hours. Bertha talked about a miracle for about 30 minutes, teasing this important miracle. The creator finally told them that the miracle was that Bertha, not Dorothy, was the mother of Christ. Then, at precisely 11 p.m., Bertha moaned as if in labor. Dorothy and Dr. Laughhead took her upstairs and tended to her as, she, as Bertha complained of abdominal pain. After 15 minutes, Bertha was fine. When Bertha returned to the group, she was nonchalant as she said, It's all a mystery to me. Bertha, a.k.a. the Creator, dominated the marathon meeting that took place over two days. But ultimately, the only thing that came from the meetings was confusion. The group took the stance that they'll have to just wait and see to learn the meaning of the Creator's messages. Despite the confusion, the group now had two independent channels of communication with the Guardians. Even though initially the Creator and Sananda disagreed on some important points, they were soon in agreement with their messaging and Dorothy regained her position of leadership. By mid-December, 
the press became more interested in Dorothy, the Laughheads, and the Seekers. Dr. Laughhead was inundated with inquiries regarding his forced resigning at Michigan State. On December 16th, reporters came to Dorothy's home. The newspeople were largely shunned. The group preferred to maintain their privacy. After much persuasion, reporters got a 30-second statement from Dr. Laughhead for broadcast. Newspapers reported that Laughhead had been dismissed from his job and he predicted the end of the world on December 21st. Dr. Laughhead tried to correct the record, stating that he didn't believe it would be the end of the world exactly. He expected a massive tidal wave and a flood. He explained that the world was a mess, but the supreme being would clean house. Many reporters mocked the group in their publications. On December 17th, Dorothy received a message from a man who said he was Captain Video from outer space. Captain Video told Dorothy that a flying saucer would pick her up in her backyard at 4 p.m. The group considered that it might be a practical joke after the press they had received, but ultimately decided to take the message seriously, as the Guardians could communicate by, by phone. So Dorothy, the Laughheads, and three others gathered in the backyard without any metal on their clothing or shoes. At 4 o'clock, Dorothy was excited. She ran between the kitchen window and the back porch, looking up at the sky. For the next 10 minutes, the others were excited too. But by 5.30, the group gave up after no flying saucer came. They went back to the living room, dejected. Dorothy and the rest of the group didn't want to discuss the issue of the failed saucer rescue. But Dorothy sat for another message, a message that made her shed tears of joy. Sananda told her that when the group was picked up, she would return to the father's house and, and not need to return to Earth. The message uplifted the group and they began to discuss their future in space. The group was still bothered by the failed pickup, though. They supported and soothed their doubts with the belief that the failed pickup wasn't a failure at all, but a practice run. That evening, after the practice run, Dorothy and Dr. Laughhead began to entertain the many visitors they received, telling them of their beliefs and even debating with the visitors. The proselytizing was a sudden change in the leaders of the group. Late that night, Dorothy received another message that the flying saucer was turning around and coming back for them at midnight. Dorothy, the Laughheads, and two others waited in the wet and snow for the spacecraft. At around 1 a.m., Dorothy said she was cold and asked the group if they wanted her to go inside for another message. Dorothy said she would only go inside for another message if the rest of the group wanted her to. They did, so she went inside. She came back in 15 minutes and said they were supposed to remain outside and the flying saucer would pick them up within the hour. They waited outside until 2 a.m., excited for the big event. There was lightning in the sky, which the group thought was a sign. They were freezing and shivering, too. Dr. Laughhead did calisthenics. The women decided to open the garage and warm up in the car. Dr. Laughhead and another man stayed outside. Dorothy wrote another message in the car. The message talked about blessing people who are patient and disciplined. It also talked about the group going back inside to rest. And at the proper time, a man would lead them to the place to be picked up by the flying saucer. At breakfast the next day, they explained the previous night's failure as a test and a dress rehearsal and an exercise in discipline. Dorothy also received messages summoning others from their group. They summoned local believers and a few from the Collegeville area. By the afternoon of the 18th, the house filled with believers and the reporters swirled outside. Dorothy constantly took phone calls. The added activity and press brought more visitors and the members proselytized. Prior to the failed flying saucer pickups, the group did not proselytize and had closed their group. They now spread the word and didn't turn away people who were genuinely interested. Their need for support increased after the disappointments. During the evening meeting, Dorothy received another message. She wrote furiously, then read the message. It said, I have never been tardy. I have never kept you waiting. I have never disappointed you in anything. Dorothy told the group that she had been assured that not a single part of the plan had gone wrong. Later that night, five men in their late teens or early 20s visited the house. They were allowed entry and had a great effect on the group. 
To understand the role of these young men, we must go back two days to December 16th. It was then that Dorothy received phone calls from two young men who said they were from the planet Clarion. That night, she gave a talk to the Flying Saucer Club. When she returned home, she found a note on her television that read, We were here, but you were not. It was signed, The Boys from Clarion. The telephone calls continued on December 17th and the 18th. On the 18th, the boys from Clarion ordered Dorothy to sit for messages every hour on the hour, and they would later verify by phone. In the afternoon, Dorothy received a phone call, which she took privately in her bedroom. She emerged from her room with tears in her eyes. She said, he is coming. And he did come, with four buddies. Dorothy recognized the voice of one, of one as the man on the phone from Clarion. Dr. Laughhead and Dorothy spent a considerable amount of time alone with the boys from Clarion. Dr. Laughhead left his meeting with them, glowing and calling them the boys from upstairs. He said their superhuman minds were something to behold. Dr. Laughhead said the boys from Clarion were trying to get Dorothy to retract her messages. He thought it was a test. Dorothy had been excited about the boys from Clarion, but she appeared distraught when she emerged from her bedroom. Dorothy sobbed near the door as the boys were getting ready to leave. She persuaded them to stay and they went back into her bedroom for another 30 minutes. After they were finished and the boys left, Dorothy said, They kept forcing me to take things back. They told me they were in contact with outer space and all the writings I had were wrong and that everything I was predicting was wrong. Then Dorothy described how she told them that she wouldn't take any of it back, that they had been sent to try to confuse her and test her. The young men replied that they were indeed there to test her. Then they said that she passed the test and that they were there to support her. Needing support from the group, Dorothy began to cite the reasons she believed the young men were from Clarion. After all, they knew things about her messages and recent events that nobody else knew. Others agreed with Dorothy, citing their own reasons to believe. Three of the visitors looked exactly alike. They refused earthly food and drink. A few in the group were skeptical, but most believed that the spacemen came to give them a test, which they passed. Dorothy told the group, At this point, I think I deserve a standing vote of confidence. A few were slow to rise, but most of the group stood with excitement. The next morning, while recounting the visit from the boys from Clarion, Dorothy said she felt she had been tested as much as Jesus Christ himself. At 10 a.m. on December 20th, Dorothy received a message that at midnight, they would be put into parked cars and taken to the flying saucer. Ten minutes before midnight, everyone was tense, sitting on couches with their coats on their laps. All metal had been removed and they were ready to go. They waited in complete silence, the tension thick. With only one minute remaining, Dorothy shouted, And not a plan has gone astray! The clock struck 12, and there was a light. A light came in from the window. It was so bright. They all stepped outside, and it was a flying saucer. No, just kidding. Nothing happened. There was nothing. Nobody said anything. After about five minutes past midnight, birth of the Creator said that the plan was still on, but there was a very slight delay. At 12.30, Bertha promised a miracle. For the next two hours, Bertha the Creator hemmed and hawed before revealing the miracle to be the death and resurrection of Dorothy's non-believing husband. Dorothy's husband had gone to sleep at 9.30. Dr. Laughhead went into, into the husband's bedroom several times to see if he had died. He was sleeping, but still alive. Bertha eventually said that his death and resurrection had already happened. Perfectly plausible, I think. The group wasn't buying this explanation, and Bertha, the creator, lost authority over the matter. The creator tried to rework the miracle, explaining that the death and resurrection was a spiritual one, not a physical one. This was accepted by the group. At 2.30 a.m., Dorothy received a message from Sananda urging the group to take a coffee break. The group didn't want to talk about the failed flying saucer pickup. They were despondent. 
Dr. Laughhead told him to have no fear, don't ever not believe. Dorothy said, suppose it doesn't happen tonight. Let's suppose it happens two years or three years or four years from now. I'm not going to change one bit. I'm going to sit here and write and maybe people will say it was this little group spreading light that prevented the flood. The group was disappointed and looking for a way to soothe the mental anguish they felt when their beliefs had met with cold, hard reality. The group re-examined the message. It said that the group would be put into parked cars and taken to the flying saucer. Lillian Laughhead said that the parked cars could be symbolic, as parked cars don't move. The creator said that the message was indeed symbolic. The parked cars actually referred to their bodies. The flying saucer symbolized their inner light. The group began to accept this, this explanation. Dorothy didn't believe this explanation, though, which greatly annoyed Bertha. Bertha demanded a more valid explanation, but Dorothy didn't have one. Dorothy said, We don't have to understand everything. We don't know what the plan is, but it has never gone astray. This wasn't acceptable to the group. One member left. Dr. Laughhead followed him and gave him a pep talk. Dr. Laughhead summed up how many felt when he said, I've given up just about everything. I can't afford the doubt. I have to believe. Meanwhile, Dorothy cried in the living room. Everyone was upset. At 4.45 a.m., Dorothy announced that she received a message, which she read aloud. It read in part, Not since the beginning of time upon this earth has there been such a force of good and light as now floods this room, and that which has been loosed within this room now floods the entire earth. As thy God has spoken through the two who sit within these walls, has he manifested that which he has given thee to do. The group was excited about the message. The apocalypse had been called off because their group had spread so much light that God had saved the world from destruction. The group changed abruptly. Immediately after, the formerly quiet members contacted newspapers and TV stations to talk about their prophecy and why it failed. By 6.30 a.m., they had contacted every reporter and wire service they could. It was the first time Dorothy had ever called a newspaper. By late morning, the initial jubilation had failed. Everyone was exhausted and now facing the consequences of an unflooded world. Some cried, unsure of what they would do, as they had quit their jobs and spent their money. The Creator assured the group that they did not need to worry about the future they would be taken care of. They must learn, study, teach, and spread the light to others. For the next two days, they approached the media like PR professionals, embracing anyone who could spread their message. They proselytized with all their might, but it didn't work. They didn't gain converts. In fact, they lost a few. On December 23rd, Dorothy received another message. This time, they were supposed to gather on the sidewalk in front of her house and sing Christmas carols. They would, they would be picked up by a flying saucer at 6 p.m. on Christmas Eve. They alerted the media of the new message. At 6 p.m., a small group of true believers gathered on Dorothy's sidewalk and sang Christmas carols. The media coverage attracted about 200 bystanders. They sang and waited for 20 minutes, but quickly retreated to Dorothy's living room when the flying saucer never came. Again, the true believers groped for an explanation, anything to prevent themselves from facing the cold, hard truth. Dr. Laughhead told a reporter, that there, were that there were spacemen in the crowd, but they didn't feel welcome to show themselves. They were worried that they might start a riot. Dorothy echoed Dr. Laughhead's sentiment that the spacemen worried about causing a riot with the large crowd. Bertha said, We could see them surrounding us last night, some of his foot helpers. It was real thrilling. Despite the true believers, the multiple disappointments were too much to rationalize. The group fractured, and members went to their individual lives or what was left of them. In the aftermath, Dorothy remained steadfast. She founded the Association of Sananda and Samat Kumara. She took the, the name Sister Thedra and practiced channeling Sananda until her death in 1992 at the ripe age of 92. Dr. Laughhead gave up medicine to proselytize around the country, but I don't know what happened to him in the long term.
only that he spread the word for the first year or two after the group split. Lillian Laughhead remained faithful to the cause and her husband. Bertha, like many of the true believers, doubled down after the December 21st saucer pickup failure, but her husband prevented her from spending time with the group after that. And without the support of the group, her conviction quickly faded. For Bertha, the spell had been broken because the social support to soothe her doubts was unavailable. In summary, after the initial elation that they had saved the world, the group experienced some doubts. They had given up a great deal because of their belief in the imminent end of the world. The world had not ended, and they were now devoid of their homes, jobs, and possessions, even a few of them, their spouses. How could they be certain that they had done the right thing? How could they convince themselves that their behavior had not been absurd? By convincing others, of course. After their original prophecy failed, the group felt motivated to attract followers as a way of convincing themselves that the sacrifices they had made were not in vain. If they could somehow persuade others that their belief had saved the world, then they could allay their own doubts. In the process, they transformed themselves from believers into zealots. Leon Festinger, one of the social psychologists who infiltrated the group, proposed his theory of cognitive dissonance for how and why human beings rationalize behavior. Dissonance occurs when a person holds two inconsistent beliefs, ideas, or opinions. The doomsday group was flooded with dissonance when the belief that the world would end on December 21st conflicted with the day coming and going without incident. According to Festinger, this inconsistency in their beliefs is so uncomfortable that people endeavor to reduce the conflict in the easiest and quickest way possible. To do this, they will change one or both of the conflicting beliefs to fit together better. This is particularly true when a person's self-esteem is threatened. In these situations, people will distort, deny, and self-persuade to justify their past behavior. Propagandists use the power of cognitive dissonance to influence people. The rationalization trap is deployed by threatening the self-esteem of those consuming the message. Propagandists can threaten self-esteem in a variety of ways, for example, making a person feel shame or inadequacy, or, expo or exposing a person as a hypocrite, or making a person feel guilty. This self-esteem bashing creates dissonance. The propagandist then offers a solution to the dissonance. You can feel better about yourself if you just buy this car, support this war, or give to this charity, or hate that enemy, or vote for this politician. So what do you think, Luke? True story? False, somewhere in between? <laughs> I think parts of that have to be true. I've heard examples of it's a cult behavior, isn't it, really? Yeah. You talk about that um, and the leaders of such cults going on, some of them to start religions all of their own, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And some of them to start political parties and movements and all sorts of things over over the the, the point of history, over the, over the time of history. I don't know whether the, that, that one is particularly is is true itself though. I don't know how much you fictionalized it for this for this story. It's uh it's almost exactly what happened. It was wow. as close as I could get it. It's it's uh from a book, uh Leon Festinger's book, uh When Prophecy Fails, a social and psychological study of of a modern group that predicted the destruction of the world. Great book. Um it's a very old book. Uh so I I, I heard about this story and then I wanted to research because I thought it was just so interesting. I just heard just like a brief amount about it. And so I thought it was so interesting. And I looked and I actually found that there was actually a detailed book about it. And I read the book. And I'm like, wow, that is so good. And so what I did was I just went and distilled the what I thought was the interesting, funny parts. And there's yeah. a lot. The, the book has a lot more details. So if people are interested in the, more of the story. Read the book. There's other There's other characters and players in this thing. But it would have made it way too long. Uh, I just think it's so interesting how this idea became part of their self-esteem and their belief system. But that's that's really how ideology works. And this is why, mm. like, if you're talking to somebody, let's say you're talking to a hardcore, and, and, and you know, you guys have the, was it like the Labor Party and the, mm. what, what's the other party you guys conservative have? Conservative Party. Yeah, let's say if you're talking to a hardcore conservative or a hardcore labor person, they have an ideology. Right. They, 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 they believe in that ideology. And if you, that's why if you challenge that ideology, they often get emotional about it because you're not just challenging 
they're, you're challenging their self-esteem. You're challenging what they, what they believe in. It's like, it's, it's the same as challenging somebody's God. Somebody's a devout yeah. Christian and you come in and say something negative about Jesus. Yeah. They're going to feel some type of way about it. But, um, but it is really interesting how human beings are susceptible to this, this type of belief system and the, the propagandists, they use it. They know, they understand how this stuff works and they use it to their advantage. So a lot of marketing you'll notice is, is a way to make us feel bad about ourselves. So we will then go out and say, well, I'm a mm. loser, but if I buy this car, people will think yeah. I'm not a loser. <laughs> right. I mean, these are the things that, that we all, um, are inundated with all the time. And we, you know, and it, I think it helps to kind of understand how some of these work, some of these things work. So that way we can see it when it's happening to us. Yeah. And you see that behavior in, um, if, if you talk about con men, don't you? They say, yeah. And they'll surround a mark in various different ways without them realizing their influence, you know, right. and, and, and introduce these new characters. And then the person thinks, well, if there, if, if three people are telling me this is true, then it's probably true. Right. Right. <laughs> or think about, uh, think about how social media has become virtual cults, uh, or, you know, or the internet and social media, because people can literally surround themselves, especially if they yeah. don't interact with the public very much, they can surround themselves with only people who believe the same things that they believe, no matter how crazy they are, you can find like, if you're a flat earther. Oh, you can find the, you can be part of the flat earther crew. And there's yeah. tons of people that will validate you. And anybody who says anything against it, they will be thrown out as a heretic. And, and, and everybody will say, but people do that all the time. Let's say you've got a Facebook feed and one of your friends says something that you completely disagree with. Well, a lot of people will say unfriend, done with that person, never talking to them Sorry. again because they believe this crazy stuff that I don't believe. And, and that's how that you, you, they end up in this echo chamber of, yeah. you know, crazy beliefs that, and, and sometimes with the internet, the crazier, the belief, the more, the more traction you'll get from the people that are already sort of believing these things. And mm. anybody who's, who tries to be the voice of reason is immediately thrown out of the group and, and, and everybody piles on and says how dumb and terrible this person is. Um, yeah, yeah, so you, I see. I understand what you mean because I suppose the system behind the al the algorithm behind which shows a social media post doesn't really know the content, but it knows the interaction that that post is getting. So it will go, "This is great. People love this," and it keeps yeah. bumping that to the top of people's feeds and shows it to everyone. You know, even though it's right. something. Yeah, the algo cares, you know? <laughs> cares about engagement. The algorithm does cares about engagement. It doesn't care about. Correct uh, or or yeah, it doesn't care about what's true. It doesn't damage. care about <laughs> yeah. doesn't care about what's healthy for people. It's just like, hey, we want eyeballs. We want you to stay on this platform for as long as possible. So whatever you know, and then the other thing is, it's driven by the likes and your engagement. So if you if you like these particular articles that say this particular group is awful, you're going to get a lot <laughs> of those articles. Take anybody, whatever you're interacting with, you're going to get more of. So yeah. you're just going to constantly be confirming your biases. And, um, anyway, so that's so the story, isn't it? <laughs> so interesting. I, I do find stories like that interesting in lots of ways in that I, I wonder what causes people to get into that situation. I wonder whether there is some, um, something in their life that meant that they rejected normal, you know, the normal mainstream and were happy to go, you know, and, and, and thought there was something else. Yeah, that's, I you think know, that's a, within that little microcosm that you've described there, that Dr. Laughgood. Was it Laughgood? Great name, laugh by the way. Laughhead. Laugh Amazing name. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you couldn't have made that up. That's too. Yeah. That's I know. Too I wouldn't nuts. have made I could. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I couldn't have made that up. <laughs> you know, just an average sort of middle of the road guy, you know, nothing, no, no real accolades to his name. And in this little microcosm, he's like the leader. You know, he he gets to parade around and make decisions and say, "You're the you're the resurrection of Mary." You know, you're the yeah. <laughs> you know, cast himself as this hero. You know, so right, right. Well, I think I think ultimately the, the question you asked there, I think, is 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 a really good question. Is like, what is it that gets people into something like this? What is the you know some sort of com I think the common denominator is these people are searching for meaning. Like there, and it's kind of sad if you think about it. I think that they're like, for example, Bertha, she was barren. 
Like uh -huh. she really, I think she, she wanted to have children and you know, she's just getting past her childbearing ages and she knows she's not going to have kids. And if you go back to the fifties, it's even a bigger, not that it's not, it's, it's obviously huge for people in general to have children, but it was even probably even bigger back then just because, um, you know, her, mm. her opportunities as a woman were much less so in 1953 than they would be today. So mm. for her, I think she was searching for meaning. And if you look at a lot of these people's lives, I mean, I, they, were searching for meaning. A lot of them were coming from very devout religious backgrounds. So they're already, already primed to believe in sort of, you know, ethereal type ideas and, uh, not to, not to jump on a big criticism of religion, but I think if, if let's say, for example, you're, if you understand what, like what the Mormons believe or what, I mean, if you understand these different religions and what, if you read the text, some of it sounds actually very, very crazy. Like if you boil yeah. it down to the details, but if you're swallowing those details, like a lot of religious people will say it's, it's, um, you know, it's metaphorical or whatever, but if you're someone that's very fundamentalist and devout and you're swallowing those details, which seem really, really crazy, you know, you, you're, I think you're more likely to be able to swallow other fantastical stories too. Mm. So, mm. Anyways. Uh, really enjoy it. It's good. It's a study into psychology, isn't it? To the psychology. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. People. Anything, anything else you want you want to add Luke before we check no, out? I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that. It's something that has, that has struck me many times. You know, when we saw there was this, these stories of about oh, a few years ago of, of disenchanted um, working class blokes leaving the UK, white blokes, English blokes oh, leaving the UK to go and join to go and join ISIS in in Libya and Syria. And I remember that. I yeah, think there are a few were, Americans too. And they were just people who had nothing. They had no. The family, broken families, broken homes, broken society, nothing right. going for looking for some. And they'd met these groups online and they promised them yeah. all sorts of mad things, you know, and it's the same thing, isn't it? They're just sort of falling down a rabbit hole without knowing. What yeah, they were searching for meaning. Mm. They were mm. searching for meaning and that, and, they, and and those groups filled that role of belonging, of meaning. Hey, you matter. You're important, uh, you know. And, and that, and that's, I think that's what happens with a lot of these hate groups too, is they recruit people that are disenchanted with society and they'll mm. bring them in and say, Hey, you matter. We care about you. You know, you need be, be with us. Right. Mm. And it's a, it's a powerful message. And, you know, especially when you have a lot of, you know, when you have a disenfranchised person who doesn't have the support of family and friends and, you know, have a lot going on in their life and just feel lost. And, um, it's actually kind of sad if you think about it. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. Great story, though. Really enjoyed it. Oh, a real, thank uh, you, Luke. Yeah. Interesting one. Thank you. Appreciate it. I appreciate everybody listening, too. So be sure to uh, like and subscribe, and uh, we'll see you next week.